Good morning. Reading from the book of Philippians, starting right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. <coughs> Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father God, speak to us from your word, we pray. Help us to understand it. Amen. This time last year, you all were expecting me and my family in church. Having come back from settling our son Matthew into university in Saskatoon. I was going to finish up my sermon series on, on the book of Ruth. And we were going to have a baptismal service that evening. I was looking forward to Duncan Darrell Nomland and Lyle Borgstrom in the cold, crisp waters of Schist Lake. What happened instead is that you were told in church that I was very sick, having been admitted to a Royal University Hospital in Saskatoon for treatment for a very aggressive leukemia. Dave Milton very graciously used my sermon notes to finish the series, and to your credit, you went ahead with the baptismal service that evening. Daryl's gone on to his reward, having succumbed to leukemia late this spring. Lyle continues to be an active and treasured person in our church. You didn't see me for the rest of that year. In fact, you didn't see any of us until last Easter, when we were able to take the weekend and escape the cold clutches of Saskatoon for, well, the cold clutches of Flin Flon. <laughs> We enjoyed that trip more than you'll know. It was so good to see our church family again. And now a year after diagnosis, I've been through three courses of chemotherapy, including the one that prepared me for a stem cell transplant in December. I've weathered numerous side effects, but I'm now nine months in remission and counting. And I was able to walk the victory lap last night during the Relay for Life in Creighton with Lori and Joel at my side. And by the way, if you noticed from the video, it's been 22 years of wedded bliss for Lori and I as of yesterday. 
This here is the preaching schedule that I had prepared for last fall. I actually do list out things and plan on doing certain sermons certain days. I wanted to work through my favorite letter in the New Testament, the letter to the Philippians, and then share some hopefully relevant Advent and Christmas thoughts with you towards the end of the year. Well, guess what? It looks like I can do that just one year later than planned. So here we go. Paul's letter to the Philippian church is a letter that's just full of joy and many heartfelt lessons for the modern church. Paul loved this church. It was a shining example of what a church should and could be. It wasn't perfect. In fact, it carried a heavy burden that Paul will address midway through the letter. But overall, it's a thriving example of what God intends his people to be in the community that he places them in. So since we're going to be working through this book, we need to have a, a bit of a look at who these people were. Philippi was a very important city in the Roman Empire. It had a proud history. There was a decisive battle in the formation of the Roman Empire that was fought there 42 years before the birth of Christ. The Romans were divided amongst the old Republicans who just wanted to kind of keep things the way they were and the younger and more aggressive imperialists who wanted to expand the empire of Rome. Well, the imperialists emerged victorious, and the leaders went on to change history by expanding the Roman Empire. It had a rich trade in gold and agriculture. Gold deposits made the city rich and prosperous. Its location on a vast, fertile plain made for bountiful farming. So its prosperity gave it a place on the most important road of the Roman Empire, the Via Ignatia, guaranteeing a steady flow of traffic and its corresponding business. And its citizenship was comprised of Greek and Roman citizens and retired Roman soldiers. It was considered a Roman military colony, which gave it a special status in the empire. Augustus had settled it with soldiers who had done their duty for the army. After finishing your duty in the Roman Empire, you were given land and cash to retire on. So these settlers, this city, remained fiercely loyal to the empire they had served for so long. So Philippi is a city 100% loyal to the empire and 100% intolerant of those who weren't. The Christian church, with its loyalty to Christ and its unwillingness to worship the emperor, stood in harm's way from the very beginning. As Christians developed a reputation for giving slaves equal status with free citizens, for not worshiping the Roman emperor as citizens, and subjects of Rome were required to do, they would have been treated with increasing contempt by their neighbors. Just imagine trying to be a church in a city where almost everyone 
was opposed to the church and regarded it with suspicion and mistrust. We have it delightfully easy in Flin Flon. We have it delightfully easy in Canada. Let us never forget those brothers and sisters who worship the Lord today in places like Egypt, in places like Iran, under the eyes of those who hate them and strive to harm them. Let me read to you again the first two verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This introduction sets the tone for the rest of the letter. The word servant stands out. In the 13 letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, this is the only one where he only identifies himself as a servant. Nine other times he uses the word apostle as one of his titles. He does this when he feels a need to assert his role as a leader, like in the letter to the Corinthians or the letter to the Galatians. Twice he goes with no title at all, and once he calls himself a prisoner. To go with the title servant alone means he doesn't feel this need to assert his authority with these people. They know him. They trust him. They're ready to take him seriously. He can be a servant of Christ without having to indicate his position within the church or anywhere else. The term Christ Jesus is also a very important term to Paul. Out of 90 times in the Bible that it occurs, Paul uses it 88. It shows how important Jesus is to Paul. He's not just a name to follow. Christ was not Jesus' last name. If you were to look him up in the phone books of the day, you'd be looking for Jesus, son of Joseph, of Nazareth. Christ is the Greek word for who Jesus was, the Messiah or Savior of the world. So every time Paul says, Christ Jesus, he wants us to remind, he wants to remind us of who Jesus was, the one who saved them from their sin and set them free. So in the first sentence, Paul has affirmed his relationship to his readers and to his Messiah. In the next sentence, he starts to address his readers. Saints is a maligned term these days. It's okay to call a football team the saints. It's okay to call your dog saint. It's even recognized as a term of respect for certain notable and usually dead religious figures. But if you call the person beside you a saint, you're probably going to get in trouble. It's supposed to be a designation of all God's children as those who are holy or set apart. It's a reminder that the Philippian church is meant to be set apart from the world it's in. Their suffering at the hands of those who oppose them is not to discourage them. It's a sign that they're making an impact. Mentioning overseers and deacons shows that there was some structure 
in the church. They may not have had a strict hierarchy, but there were certain people that were recognized as leaders and others recognized for their positions of service. And then his greeting after this is pretty much the same as every other letter he's written. Grace and peace to you. This may seem like just an interesting footnote, but as I checked it out, I entered into what might be called a teachable moment. Each of the 13 letters Paul wrote is very different. Romans reads like a theology paper, very academic. Galatians is aggressive. It's downright abrasive attack on falsehood. Philemon is a personal plea for a wayward slave. First and Second Timothy are how-to manuals for a pastor. In each of these circumstances and many others, Paul always sought grace and peace for the readers. Whether he was pleased with them or upset, whether he knew them well or was a relative stranger, he desired that they may know God and be at peace with him. It was what drove him. It was his calling. And he knew where grace and peace came from. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His words weren't the polite niceties of a social mailing. They were the words of his heart. His foundation was not himself, was not his friends or even the church he labored so hard to build. It was his Father and his Savior. So just in these two short verses, we see Paul talking to the people in Philippi as a servant leader who wants to lead them toward the grace and peace of God. The next sentence is one of my favorite in the Bible. See that dramatic pause there as I... Take a sip of water. Verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. Just imagine the love and joy here. Paul is able to declare that he's thankful for these people every time he thinks about them. Do we have anyone like this in our lives? Someone to whom we could write with honesty and tell them that every time they come to mind, we thank God for them. Maybe our spouses are that person, or, or, or children, or parents, or our extended family, or our church family, or friends that have become dear over the years. But please note here that continually giving thanks for someone doesn't mean we ignore their faults. I'm not talking about painting our loved ones with whitewash, idolizing them, or looking at them with rose-colored glasses. When Paul goes on to address some important and rather sticky issues in this church, he clearly and with love takes them to task for the mistakes they're making. They're not perfect. He doesn't soft-pedal his treatment of their faults. Yet even with this, he starts his thoughts by showing them he loves them, by giving thanks for them. Verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. These words explain why he was so thankful. It boils down to the relationship they share as Christian brothers and sisters. Paul was at this church from the very beginning, hence the first day until now that we see in verse 5. He had come to Philippi to share the gospel. And since they didn't have a synagogue to speak in, Paul ended up speaking about Jesus with a group of Jewish women by the river. This comes from Acts chapter 16. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Theatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So it's not only, so not only is the Philippian church the first church to begin in what we now call Europe, it's also the first church to explicitly begin with a group of faithful women at its core. Makes me wonder why so many of us have had such a big fuss about women in ministry. It's quite obvious in the New Testament that women and men are at the heart of the early church, and they're working together to help others learn more about Jesus and his love. Paul then goes on to expand upon why the Philippians are so important to him in verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul felt this need to justify his personal words. They were so emotionally charged that he wanted them to trust that he wasn't just trying to woo them or charm them. He really means what he's saying. The Philippian church is obviously in his heart. When he's writing this, he's locked up in house arrest, facing a trial which could lead to his execution. And here he is praying for them and writing them thank you letters. He saw them as his partners in ministry. Even though they're hundreds of miles away, they still have this special bond, the gospel that holds them together. I can say to you that you are in my heart. This is fairly self-explanatory. You've been so supportive of Lori and I during my illness. We really are blessed to be a part of this church family. We also share in God's grace together. Now what does that mean? It means that God is amongst us as individuals and as a church. God wants great things to happen in this church and every other church that strives 
to love Him and serve Him. It's His presence amongst us which gives us power to be His church right here in our own community. Paul affirmed this grace even though he was far away from the Philippians at the time. So do I. Part of the grace of God amongst us is how our union as a church family thrives even when we're physically separated. One thing I told my church back in Prince Rupert is this. This church doesn't let you go. It cares for you. It thinks about you and prays on your behalf and wonders how you're doing. It's a powerful and beautiful thing and I want to affirm it amongst you all today. Well, I can say the same thing to you as my church in Flin Flon. Even though we were apart for so long, we never felt like you let us go. You've loved us and prayed for us and we have so deeply appreciated it. And where will the source of this love and care come from? It all comes from the grace of God, His presence, His power. Being the source of all that is good about our church and any church, we don't generate these things on our own strength. They come from our desire to be bonded together as a people of God. The grace that we share together is what keeps us together. So the Apostle Paul has let the people know that he's thankful for them and that they can do great things together. He's also let them know that God's grace is what holds them together, even though they were so very far apart at the time he writes these words. I too believe that it is God's grace that ultimately holds us together. But I'm thankful to be able to say it right here, right now instead of from a prison cell or a hospital bed, hundreds of miles away. He wraps, this, he wraps these thoughts up. He wraps up this expression of his love with a prayer. A prayer that defies comparison as an expression of a genuine heartfelt desire that the people he was writing to would enjoy the very best blessing that God had to share with them. Starting at verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Each one of these clauses could do a whole sermon on its own, but I don't really think you want to hear seven more sermons this morning, so I'll keep it a little shorter than that. The phrase love may abound more and more, a deep-seated love, that is based on Christ's love for us. Growing, not stagnant, or reactionary. Love that grows is love that is shared. In knowledge and depth of insight, a love that's not based on fluff or sentiment, but rooted in wisdom and discretion. 
a love that's ready to see areas that may not be healthy, a love that can say yes and no. Yes to what is good and helpful. No to what is harmful and short-sighted. So that you may be able to discern what is best. God's love is based on His perfect knowledge and we should seek to emulate that. Let the Word of God shape our love for others. That we may be pure and blameless. There are standards in love. There are rules that God demands we acknowledge. This is something that God's forgiveness also brings. If we're not pure and blameless, and who is, we're made that way by the love of Christ in forgiving our sins. With that forgiveness in place, we seek to maintain it through following Him. Until the day of Christ. God's love keeps His promise in view. That He will return to us and make all things right. He does actually mean a real day here, not just a sense of well-being or a state of existence. On that day will be God's ultimate fulfillment of his promises to those who love him and follow him. And also his final judgment on those who choose to reject him. This gives his people hope that he will come through for them. Even when what is going on right now seems so overwhelmingly against them. Filled with the fruit of righteousness... Fruit is what comes out of our lives. As healthy trees produce fruit, healthy Christians do too. Even when we're knocked around and beaten and left for dead. I still remember years ago seeing this orchard in, in the middle of Kelowna. And it had been cut so every apple tree was that tall. It was just stumps left. And that was in the fall. By... The next spring, they were still there. And branches were growing straight up out of them. And by harvest time, all those trees were just bursting with apples. Even though they had been cut to the quick, they came back. They were pumping out fruit. Christians are like that. Beat us up, knock us around a bit. But in Jesus' strength, we still can produce fruit. That comes through Jesus Christ. The fruit produced in our life is Jesus working through us. Not Jesus taking our good deeds and rubber stamping them. Jesus first, before we act. Not as an afterthought. To the glory and praise of God. All of this works to honor and recognize with gratitude and obedience our Father God in heaven. Even Jesus, as God's Son and God Himself, serves Him. So should we. So in this prayer, He asks that their love may grow. That it may be a thoughtful and complete love that helps them to do the right thing and live the right way. So that they may be fruitful and productive members of God's family until the day He returns. So that God may be given all the honor that he is due. Is this the way that we pray for those we love 
those that we're thankful for. It's just such a wonderful model for prayer that shows not just affection, but a real concern and care for those who are being prayed for. To wrap this up today, we have a partnership, you and I, just like Paul and the Philippian church had. Our partnership isn't based on how much we like each other. I like you plenty. I like you fine. But that's not what our partnership is based on. It's based on the gospel that holds us together. It's a simple message of a Savior who loves us enough to give his life for our sin and is powerful enough to defeat death and rise from the dead. It's a message that we're called to work together to share. A love that we're called upon to share with those God brings into our path. And finally, may we all be praying for each other as we have seen Paul pray for the Philippians today. May we pray that each other has a growing, thriving love, rooted in God's love for us and brimming with discernment and power. May we pray the best for each other, being mindful that God is near and His promises are certain. Jesus will return in righteousness, justice, and mercy. And may we strive to bring out the best in each other, so that God may be served and his church may grow through each and every one of us. Let's pray. <coughs> Father God, we've just been so impressed by your love for your people. Paul just pours out his love upon the Philippian church. Help us, Lord to take the love we've received from you and pour it out on those around us. May we be able to pray the way Paul prays. We may not be so eloquent. We may not have all those great words strung together so well. But you've said it's the heart that counts. You take our mumblings, our groanings, and turn them into words that you hear. So Father God, help us to love. Help us to pray. Help us to encourage and support each other in our faith. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.